All right. Well, good evening, everybody. Thank you for joining us for tonight's lecture at the Aquarium of the Pacific. And thank you to everyone watching online as well. We appreciate you joining in the conversation there. My name is Chris Corpus. I am the AV Production Manager here at the Aquarium, and I am thrilled to have our speaker here tonight. Before we bring her up and before I uh, formally introduce her, please do silence your cell phones and refrain from texting uh, while you are here. And of course, I do also want to thank our lecture sponsors, the Gazette Newspapers and the Courtyard Marriott. As a storyteller and someone who is attempting to communicate about science, again, I am so thrilled to have our speaker tonight, Dr. Jennifer Brandon, who will be discussing her career as a scientist, studying marine debris, and her work as a science communicator. Dr. Brandon has a PhD in biological oceanography from the Scripps University, Institution of Oceanography, where she studied plastic pollution and how it enters the marine food web in the North Pacific Ocean. She recently completed an 18-month stint as the Price Postdoctoral, Postdoctoral Fellow in Science Communication and Outreach at the Birch Aquarium at Scripps. There she taught a college lecture course on science communication and helped coordinate an outreach program to 60 Title I classrooms. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Jennifer Brandon. Please join me. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, as Chris said, um, my name is Jenny Brandon, um, and I am so glad to be here. Um, I give a decent number of talks, and this is maybe the nicest I've ever been treated, <laughs> as you guys have kind of wined and dined me today. Um, so yeah, today I'm going to be talking about um, what, what studying the Great Pacific Garbage Patch taught me about being a science communicator. Science communicator. This, this talk is um, maybe going to be a little bit meta in a way, because it's hard to talk about being a science communicator without actually communicating some science. So I'm going to talk about um, science communication while also talking to you about the actual science that I do about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch itself. Um, so the title of the talk is actually, no, it's not actually an island, um, which is probably the number one thing I have to tell people about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, um, and I'll go into that in just a second. Um, but first of all, who am I? Why am I here talking to you about this? Um, this is a little bit of what Chris just said, but how I ever got into talking about um, plastic and um, science communication is I went to get my PhD in 2012. I started at Scripps Institution of Oceanography studying plastic pollution. Um, and I got there at a very interesting time. I followed a girl named Miriam Goldstein and a cruise called the Seaplex Cruise that was getting a lot of international press attention. Um, and plastic was just kind of becoming in the national consciousness. People were just starting to talk about it. Um, and then Miriam graduated. She and I only overlapped for three months. And then I was the only person at Scripps actively studying marine debris for about six years. And so at a time when most grad students do basically no science outreach, I was actively doing tons of science communication and outreach um, about marine debris and kind of just being thrown in the deep end of becoming a science communicator about the science I was doing. And so for the last 18 months, I have actually been doing a postdoc focused not on research, but completely on science communication and outreach. Um, and I've actually been teaching college courses on science communication, building exhibits, um, and all things, things like that. that. So in, in my time, time um, I've, I've gotten, gotten to do outreach on 
all, kind, to all kinds, kinds of audiences. audiences. So, so to, to local, local schools, schools, from preschoolers to college students, to Sierra Clubs, to Girl Scouts, to UCSD um, retired professors, which might be the toughest audience I've ever talked to, um, to different aquariums and museums, lots of potential donors. Um, the, do the development office probably uh, rings my phone the most. Um, but I've also talked to, to some maybe, maybe more high-profile audiences, BBC, NPR, CBS, podcasts, live radio, the Smarter Planet team. But what, what I've really realized is that it doesn't really matter whether I'm on uh, like, like live NPR or whether I'm talking to the kindergartners. You actually have to use kind of the same outreach strategies and kind of assume that people know the same amount about your science and go into it and really knowing that you know the science and they're going to have basically the same questions. And I generally start at the same spot and then kind of read the room that I'm in. So this is my outreach strategy for tough science topics. Um, generally, I'm talking about marine debris, but sometimes I walk into a room and I'm talking about climate change. Sometimes I'm talking about an endangered species. It can be all kinds of things. But it's a fairly simple outreach strategy. Um, step one is I always clear up the misinformation first. And the misinformation generally is just from practice that I always kind of hear the same misinformation over and over. So I start there. Step two, you give them the correct kind of often depressing, <laughs> the in this day and age, often depressing information in the middle. And then in step three, you have to end on a positive, action-oriented note. Um, if you don't have step three and you end with step two, um, they're really not likely to change any of their actions. Okay, so we're going to do this a little bit in practice. Step one, clear up misinformation first. I don't ever like to let um, just kind of start talking and let my audience sit there and um, sit in the audience confused or maybe with some wrong assumptions and I just start talking because um, they're not going to fully absorb what I'm saying. So every single presentation I give, I start with the same slide, which is this. Um, there's been a lot of public concern about plastic in the open ocean since about 2007 is when people started talking about it. You may have seen a lot of articles like this. You may have seen some talk about it as a trash island. You may have seen things that say it's taking over the ocean. You may have seen things that say it's twice the size of Texas. You may have seen things that say it's twice the size of America. Um, you've probably heard it called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. You might not really know what that means. Um, trash islands is probably the most common thing it's called. You might have heard it called a gyre. You definitely probably don't know what that means. But this is really what people see when they Google it. And what they think of is the Great Trash Island. Well, I'm here to tell you this is not what the middle of our Pacific Ocean looks like for multiple reasons. One, this is a comic book, so that's good. It's not what it looks like. This comic book, The Great Pacific, um, is about an island of trash that's so thick that he can actually walk on it, and he colonizes it, and he names it New Texas. Um, it's not that thick, luckily. And this, this is, is a children's book where the garbage patch has become basically anthropomorphized, and you have to feed it plastic bags to keep it alive. So the moral got lost somewhere in this children's book. Um, but these three pictures are real pictures. They're real photos. Um, these are real places on our planet that are this 
dirty. These, These are also three of the first pictures I've pulled off Google, Google images. So you Google image Great Pacific Garbage Patch, and this is what comes up. And this is what people think is in the middle of the ocean. Um, this is not actually the middle of the ocean. Note, that is a city skyline. So that's not the middle of the ocean. That is actually um, a construction truck. This is a city trash dump. So this is just kind of the angle that's making it look like it's the middle of the ocean. But, but these, these two, two pictures, pictures are actually water. Um, these, these are actually really, really dirty harbors, harbors and really dirty rivers. And, and, and so, so it's, it's still really troubling that anywhere on our planet looks, looks that polluted. That's, that's not, not a good thing. thing. And, and you probably know that like, like most rivers um, eventually lead to the ocean. And, mo and, and harbors are in the ocean. So a lot of this trash could end up out in the Pacific and out in the garbage patch. But luckily, this is not the middle of the Pacific Ocean, looks like, right now. OK, that's it. That's all I do to just kind of start that everyone in the audience is on the same playing field. Like, I know you might think it's an island. It's not. Let me tell you what it really looks like. OK, so the, the meat of the presentation I normally give is giving people what I actually do, the right information. I try to give hard facts, but also give you a story. I don't want to just give you a lecture and make you think you're back in high school. And I never want anyone to fall asleep in any of my lectures, though it's definitely happened. Um, this middle one is, I think, very important. Um, hopefully, um, you have a job where you only look at graphs if you find them interesting. Or if you hate graphs, you haven't looked at a graph in like 20 years. So, so I'm only going to make you look at graphs that are very, very important. A lot of scientists think you're going to innately find their graphs and data interesting. I think in this whole slideshow, there's two graphs. There might be three. But I'm going to try to make you basically understand my entire PhD without having to look at most of the actual data, because I don't think you really need it to understand like the meat of what I actually did. Um, and then always starting with the basics. Um, and this is something that I kind of hammer home to my students, is just because you really love sharks or you really love coral reefs doesn't mean everyone in the audience loves coral reefs or even knows what coral are. So starting with the basics, coral is an animal, not a rock. Like, let's start there and then move into why corals are endangered, starting with the basic basics. And then knowing your audiences. And when I gave my PhD defense, some of these exact same slides were used with much bigger words. And I deleted those words and put it in words that normal humans use. OK. So I actually start with the most basic thing, which is what is plastic and where did it come from? Plastic as a substance is relatively new to the planet. Um, in the most, most basic form, it was invented during the Civil War as celluloid. And um, that was from cotton and camphor. So it's technically a bioplastic. Um, this is celluloid. Celluloid was actually invented to solve an environmental problem. It was made to imitate ivory. So way back in the 1860s, we already knew we were killing too many elephants, so we were going to run out of ivory. In 1907, the first fully synthetic plastic, Bakelite, was made. And by synthetic, I mean not made from a plant or animal. So it was made from coal, actually. And this is Bakelite. They used to make billiard balls out of it. Um, and, and, and like the, the first phones were made out of it. Um, you can actually, it's actually a collectible item now. In 1920, PVC was made also as an environmental solution. 
um, because rubber trees were already going endangered. And then in 1933, um, polyethylene, the most common plastic, was invented. But in the 20s and 30s, these plastics were not common. They were basically invented because chemists could invent them, but they weren't really used for anything. Then World War II happens in the 1940s, and suddenly there's a plastics boom in popularity because we needed everything else for the war effort. So all the glass and metal and everything is sent to the war. Plastic becomes more popular back home. Then the war is over. All these plastic factories are up and running. What are we going to do with all this plastic? There is a very concerted and targeted advertising effort to American housewives specifically by the plastics industry of what to do with this plastic. This is 1955. Life magazine, throwaway living, disposable items cut down household chores. Look how happy they look. <laughs> they're throwing away their cups and their plates and their knives, and they'll never do dishes again. And their lives are so easy. And this is basically the beginning of the single-use plastic movement in the 50s. In 1954, we invent styrofoam. But in the 1970s, early 1970s, Scripps scientists find plastic in the middle of the subtropical gyres, which is where the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is. So very quickly, this becomes an ocean pollution problem. It's not till 1989 um, that Marple Annex 5 is passed, which is a law that bans plastic disposal at sea. So before 1989, any ship, no matter how big, like huge Navy vessels, are dumping all, all their trash, trash overboard, including, including all, all their plastic. plastic. This, this is because, because people didn't really understand what plastic was, and they didn't understand how it degraded. And so they didn't understand that it was lasting so long out at sea. OK, so the plastic today, this is World War II. This is today, very exponential curve in production. So today we have 280 million tons of plastic are produced annually worldwide. Of that 280 million tons, an estimated about 8 million tons are entering the ocean annually. So a good chunk of this plastic is ending up in the ocean, and we have a standing stock of about 5 trillion pieces of plastic in the ocean. So there's a lot of plastic in the ocean right now, and it's continuing to increase. How is it getting there? This is the same picture I showed you before of a dirty river. That's how a lot of it's getting there. That's actually how the majority of it's getting there. Dirty coastlines, dirty rivers, dirty harbors. This is our local river in San Diego, the Tijuana River. Um, it's dry from the months of September and October. And we try to actively clean it, though it's kind of a failed effort, because um, all of this comes out um, in every rainy season. And then these two graphs show you, basically, the more people that live in a city, the more trash that they're dumping out of their river. It makes a lot of sense, really, but cities of high population, like Europe and the East Coast, are dumping more trash into the ocean right there. The really dangerous part about this study is that um, in the next 50 years, um, all population growth is basically supposed to be right on the coast. So we're supposed to be adding even more plastic to the ocean. Um, uh, but based on coastal population increase. Okay, so, so here we are in San Diego. I dropped my bike helmet in the river. Where does it go? Well, where it goes is it goes out in this huge current that we call the California Current. The California Current 
goes in this circle of currents that we call the North Pacific Subtropical Gyre. Now, some people think that a gyre is a term for plastic pollution. Um, it's not. We didn't invent this term in the plastics community. This is actually a physical oceanography term. These currents have been doing this and mixing the water to the middle of the ocean um, basically since the Earth formed. But they used to just be pushing, pushing like seaweed to the middle and driftwood. Now, now that there's all this plastic, they're all pushing that plastic to the middle. And, and it works basically like a sink drain, where when you pull the, the plug on your sink drain or your tub drain and you see all those bubbles go to the middle, that's basically what's happening in what we call the convergence zone. So this whole convergence zone you can consider the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. You will find trash in that whole area. But the area that people talk about being twice the size of Texas is actually this really concentrated red area. This is what we call the Eastern Pacific Garbage Patch. And then there's a Western Pacific Garbage Patch. And the way that the currents work, those areas are the most concentrated. And then this is where I did my PhD, basically from California to Honolulu. This poor little white box is Hawaii. Hawaii is like right in the middle of the action. Okay, so all the trash is out there. Why is it a problem? Well, it's a problem for a lot of reasons. You guys have probably seen pictures like this. This is a lot of how like, people get into this issue, is they see a picture like this. Plastic can be a problem for um, animals for multiple reasons. It can entangle them. Um, especially fishing gear is really strong. That's what it's designed to do. Um, and so it can entangle animals for years. Um, this, this is what, what we call ghost fishing, where it's still fishing the animal, it's still doing its job. If it's a fishing net or a lobster pot or whatever, it's still fishing the animal, but there's no fishermen to benefit from it, and that's why we call it ghost fishing. So it can entangle the animal, or the animal can eat the plastic. Here, an animal has eaten the plastic. It has literally eaten so much of it that it has no room left for its real food, and we call that physical starvation. So slowly over time, it eats less and less of its real food every day, but it thinks it's full because its stomach's full of trash, and then it slowly starves to death. This deep-sea fish probably died almost instantly, though, because it had a plastic bag that was three times as long as it in its stomach. And then this net is actually zoomed in right here, and you can see rafting species. So these are sea anemones. Sea anemones are not supposed to live on the surface of the ocean. And so this shows you actually get things that get in the wrong part of the water column. You get rafting species that are native to Hawaii, ending up in Japan. You can get things that are native to um, Japan, ending up over here in California after the tsunami. And you can get pathogens and viruses, all kinds of things just taking a ride on the plastic. Okay, but again, most of the plastic is actually not as big as that plastic I just showed you in that picture. And, and, and this is, again, not what you see out there when you go to the garbage patch. Those are teeny tiny islands. He's not in the middle of the ocean. So the first time I went out to the garbage patch, I was like, in the middle of the ocean. I was three to four days from land in any direction. It was just blue, blue, blue. And I really wasn't sure we'd gotten there, because when you first get there, it's just blue. And you're like, oh, are we here? But then you realize you are three to four days from land. There should be no trash. And then you start to see trash, and you're like, huh, that's weird. 
But then, as you stop the boat to harpoon this tire, you let the water settle. And as the wake settles, you start to see all these little pieces of trash start to come out of the water. And we started to see all these little pieces, and we're like, huh, maybe that's why it looks so blue, because the trash is really small. And what we actually realized is what looks like blue water was actually just full of trash that had maybe already broken down. And so in this picture that looks relatively blue, there's actually at least 23 pieces of plastic in it. There's actually much more than that, um, but those are just the ones that are big enough for, your, for the camera to see them. And so we started counting these in our lab and trying to figure out how many pieces of micro-microplastic were there. And Mary Goldstein counted 32,000 pieces of plastic and found that over 90% of them were smaller than an mm. So this plastic is the same size, this tiny plastic she counted is the same size as plankton, it's small enough for baby fish to eat, but um, microplastic, as um, the government defines it, is right here, this five millimeter. But when I came along, I noticed, huh, it doesn't look like there's any plastic right here. Like, does the plastic just stop? Like, where's the tiny plastic? What I realized is actually, pretty much every plastic scientist, over 11,000 of us, 11,000 toes, there aren't 11,000 of us doing this, over 11,000 toes had used the exact same net to measure this. And we basically had never counted the tiniest plastic. Anything tinier than this net had just gone right through it. And we didn't know what was there. And so the teeniest, tiniest plastic had basically gone missing. We'd never counted it. Okay, so before I go on and tell you what was there, I want to tell you what, what I mean by microplastic. Because some people don't know where this plastic's coming from, which is perfectly understandable. You don't spend all day looking at tiny microplastic. Um, microplastic comes from four places. When I find out in the middle of the ocean, I can kind of instantly tell you what kind of plastic it is, which of these four it is. The first one is fragments. So fragments came from something big, like a water bottle, and it broke down into these little pieces. Sometimes you can tell what it used to be. This used to be a bottle cap, but most of the time you have no idea where this plastic came from, what it used to be how long it's been in the ocean, how long it took to get to that tiny piece. You can just tell by its kind of sharp, raggedy edges that it used to be something much bigger. The next thing is what we call fibers. Um, fibers are coming off all of our clothes. So you wash your clothes, and then um, what we think of as our clothes wearing out is actually little pieces of the fabric of your clothes wearing off. Those fibers are too small to get caught at the wastewater treatment plant, and so they wash down the drain and they end up out in the ocean. This also happens with fishing nets and ropes out at sea. They rub against each other, and those fibers come off. And we find tons of these fibers out in the ocean. The last one you might have heard of, this is a little more commonly like reported on, and these are called microbeads. These are these things that make your um, toothpaste look like it has glitter in it or your hand sanitizer look like it has fun polka dots in it. All of that is plastic, also designed to wash down the drain. So you brush your teeth with plastic, you spit it out. It's too small to get caught at the wastewater treatment plant. We catch it out in the ocean. 
This you can tell are microbeads, not fragments, because they're almost always perfectly round, and they're very small. And then the last one is super weird, and I um, would doubt you've ever heard of them, but you actually have probably seen them at the beach because they're almost everywhere. These are called nurdles, and this is what your plastic is made out of. So it goes from the oil refinery to being turned basically right into nurdles, and this is pure plastic. And then these nurdles are melted into a plastic water bottle. They're used by someone. Then they're taken to the recycling center. They're melted back into nurdles. Then they're melted into some other toy or something. Nurdles are basically the currency of plastic. But they're tiny, and they're small, and they are really light, and they get lost all the time in the process of shipping. And so we find them all the time. And you know they're nurdles because they're these perfect little disks. Okay. So when I say I find them all the time, where do I find them in the ocean? Some plastic is buoyant, which means it flows with the surface of the ocean. So animals that feed at the surface eat it. Some plastic, like PVC pipes, sink immediately to the bottom of the ocean. I don't study the bottom, so I don't ever look at that plastic, but it's down there. Um, and then some plastic does, has a weird journey where an animal up here this fish eats the plastic, packages it in its little poop, and it sinks like that. Or something that floats will get covered in biofilm and barnacles, and then it'll slowly start to sink. And then something will come along, and it'll taste so good because it's covered in this biofilm, then it'll get cleaned off, and then it'll pop back up, and then it'll sink. So then that's how those ones live in the middle. Okay, before I go on, um, some, some of you probably, probably thought you were going to do a science communication talk, not a plastics talk. talk. So, <laughs> um, basically, these slides that I added here, we started to add, I started to add into this talk because I realized people didn't really, I would just talk and talk about microplastics and realize that people didn't realize that microfibers were plastic or that the microbeads they were hearing about were plastic. Or where, where plastic, plastic was in the ocean. ocean. Some, some of it is denser than plastic, and some of it, or denser, denser than water, and some of it isn't. And, and so, hopefully, as I'm doing this, you're seeing, um, you're kind of seeing the practice of why why I add these slides in, so that people understand and like understand my plastics work before I show them the actual research. Okay, I'm going to show you like two slides of research. And, and then, <laughs> but, but I, I promise, promise there's, oh, there's one graph, maybe two graphs. Um, okay, okay, so, so are microplastics an even bigger, bigger problem than macroplastics? The fact that these plastics are so tiny, you can barely see them, is that an even bigger problem in the ocean than if it was a garbage patch, an island? Well, the truth is, that it might be, because most of these plastics, these teeny tiny plastics, are the, the same size as the plankton at the bottom of the food chain. So plankton are um, the animals that live at the very base of our food chain. And, and what plankton, plankton eat, plastic, here are them eating plastic in, um, here are them eating plastic in the laboratory, they use fluorescent plastic. These guys are then eaten by tiny fish, or they're eaten by bigger fish, or they're eaten by bigger fish. So what these guys eat is very essential to um, the entire ecosystem. So, so I, I wanted to go, I did my PhD on um, trying to figure out what are these guys eating? What is this tiniest stuff? So if really we were undersampling 
this, this little, little tiny microplastic that was going through there. And we needed to figure out a method to sample these, what we were calling nanoplastics, smaller than net mesh. I spent a lot of time figuring out ways to analyze that tiniest, tiniest plastic. And what I found was that plastics smaller than that 333 micron mesh net were actually a million times more abundant than the greater, than 333 micron plastic. So that entire graph I showed you, all that plastic, where over 90% of it was smaller, and then a M&M doesn't even really compare to how much of it is smaller than the micron mesh because we had basically just missed a million times and the plastic. But the larger plastics are still taking up more surface area when I multiplied every single piece by its surface area. Now what does any of this mean or why do you care? And this is where there's kind of a pause to the science communication talk. I used to try to explain this with the actual graphs from the talk. Nobody cared about them. They were like box and whisker bots, which don't even make sense to people in stats class making them. Then I found this graph, or this photo. So this basically explains this whole chapter of my thesis in one photo. And this right here is about 40 microfibers tangled together. Each one of them is very tiny, its diameter is about five micrometers. So each one of these could easily get through my net mesh and wouldn't have been counted before. That's about 40 pieces. This is one large piece, right? This is actually not a piece of plastic, this is actually a grain of rice. Um, but, but imagine this is a piece of plastic. So if you are an animal that eats tiny, tiny plastic, these 40 pieces that you're gonna mistake for food, these 40 pieces are going to affect you a lot more than this one big piece. But if you're a bacteria or an algae that lives on surfaces, this one large piece is going to affect you a lot more than these 40 tiny pieces. Because you have a lot more surface area to colonize here. You have a lot more surface area to lay eggs on here if you're a tiny fish, things like that. If you're an animal that just filter feeds big particles, you're going to see this as one big particle, and you're going to see all 40 of these as one kind of big particle. You're going to eat that kind of like a hairball. So they're both, they're both going to affect you basically on one-to-one -one ratio. So in reality, which one's worse? The fact that there's a ton of tiny pieces or a couple bigger pieces? They're actually, the answer is it depends what level of the food chain you're asking about. Does that make sense? OK. And I didn't even have to show you any graphs. Okay. So none of this really matters if the animals are smart enough to avoid the plastic and they aren't eating it. So then I decided to figure out, are the animals eating it? So I looked at some plankton at the bottom of the food web. I picked this plankton called a salp for a couple of reasons, but mainly just because they're my favorite plankton. But salps are filter-feeding plankton, which means they only eat things based on the size of it. And then the size that they eat is the exact size of plastic that I was finding. So they were kind of like patient zero for the plastic problem. They were going to interact with it a lot. They also can't swim without eating. So they are constantly filtering the ocean for tons of water. And they're going to come in contact with a lot of plastic. And there's years where we have none of them here in the California current. But the years we have a lot of them, they basically outcompete every other plankton and eat anything. 
more than them. So they would basically be like out competing the other animals for plastic, um, which isn't obviously a, a competition you want to win. But then the other really weird thing about them is they've been proven to be really important in the carbon cycle because they have the fastest sinking poop in the ocean which is, yes, something scientists spend time figuring out. And, and so they eat here at the surface, and then their poop sinks directly to the deep sea. And then when they die, actually their whole body sinks to the deep sea. And so if they were eating a lot of plastic, they could also eat plastic at the surface and take that plastic to the deep sea. So I took salps from different years, from all the way from San Diego to Hawaii, different species, different life phases, all these things. It didn't matter. Every single salp I dissected, regardless of species, location, everything, had plastic in its stomach at the time that I dissected it. So 100% of salps are eating plastic, which means that they could be a key transport mechanism of plastic from the surface of the deep sea. Again, if I pause my plastic talk and go to my science communication talk, um, there used to be a graph here trying to explain all this to you. And then I realized what people really need to know is why. Is the why does any of this matter to you? Why this matters is at least 202 species eat salps. Salps multiply like crazy and filter water like crazy. So they're eating a ton of plastic that's being eaten by animals up the food chain. And their, and their fecal pellets and their carcasses are taking that plastic to the DC. So that's not great, right? We're getting to the end of step two. You're starting to feel a little depressed. I can feel it in the room. Imagine doing this every day, guys. Okay, so is the plastic problem getting worse? This is my last chapter. So I already showed you this graph. Plastic production is exponentially increasing. Can we, Can we see, see this, this in the, the ocean? ocean? That's, That's what we wanted, wanted to know. So Miriam Goldstein looked at it in the surface of the ocean, and she looked from the 70s, there wasn't a ton of plastic. Plastic was relatively new. And she looked at the 2000s. Plastic was increasing. And she found a hundredfold increase, but this is at the surface of the ocean. I wanted to look at what the bottom of the ocean looked like in our sediment record. Um, to see if we were actually leaving plastic behind in um, basically in our fossil record. So what I looked at was what we call a sediment core, and I wanted to see how plastic had deposited over time. And in this core, this is 2010, this is 1945, this is 1850. Um, why I looked at the whole core is because I did not expect there to be any plastic before World War II. But the people that took the core for me, plastic, 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 I had to correct for a lot of researcher contamination. Especially if you've ever been in a science lab, they are like all plastic everywhere. So once I corrected for that science, um, for that researcher contamination, I found an exponential increase um, in the plastic we were depositing in the seafloor from 1945 to 2010. Now, if you're looking at this exponential curve and it looks a little bit like that exponential curve I put up two slides ago of worldwide plastic production, you are correct. They almost perfectly match. So what this means, the why here, is we are leaving plastic behind in our fossil record 
um, at almost the exact rate of, um, of us producing it. And so what this basically means, what geologists say this means, is when you studied like the Bronze Age and the Copper Age and all those things in school, we're basically making a new industrial age. And it could someday be called the Plastics Age. Okay. Whew, so I'm done. That's the end of my talk. <laughs> you are feeling great about the ocean. You're feeling super motivated. You want to go change everything. Obviously, that's not where you want to end. Because if you leave the audience feeling hopeless there, they're, they're not, not going to go, go home and change, and change anything. anything. Now, now, that, that might, might sound funny, funny especially, especially because with plastic, plastic it's, it's very easy. My, my next slides are like very easy of how to change things. things. But I can't, I can't tell you how many climate change talks I have gone to that, that do end there. That are just like, well, so, you know, we're at 415 at like, parts per million today, and that's it. We're done. And you're just like, well, no one's going to go, like, walk to work tomorrow if you basically told them you have to get every country in the world to agree and, and like, sing kumbaya together to make anything change. Like, it's not going to help. So you have to have the audience feel like they're a part of the solution in order um, to have the talk really like have be meaningful or your exhibit be meaningful here or whatever. Um, so for me, I always have slides about what you can do. And I think what's really important about plastic pollution um, and why I think plastic pollution has made inroads with people is that it's something you can actually see and you, it's very tangible. And when, and when I do put up slides of polluted beaches, it's things you recognize that you have used, that you have thrown away before. So these are some super simple solutions you've probably seen. Bringing your own bag to the grocery store, carrying your own lunch bag and a water bottle. I'm really into people think, rethinking how they bring their lunches to school and work because I see a lot of plastic used in that way. Refusing straws and coffee lids. Um, buying recycled plastic goods. These are um, recycled plastic and hand soaps. Why I think this is important is as we're in a very complicated situation right now with US recycling, one of the problems is there's not a huge end market for all the recycled plastic we do have. And so if you consciously buy things that are made out of recycled plastic, it does actually create that demand. This plastic I get asked about a lot, corn-based plastic, sugar-based plastic, whatever you want to call it. Um, this plastic is great if what you're really excited about is us using less petroleum, or um, if, you, if your city has municipal compost. This plastic is not the answer for ocean pollution. If you throw this in the ocean, it will not biodegrade. It will not degrade any faster than normal plastic. So it's probably not the solution. Um, that, that we need for the ocean. Okay, reducing microfibers in your life. So <laughs> I kind of flip through that microfiber slide and it's always a slide that kind of sticks with people. So this slide is some things you can actually buy to have less microfibers in your life. These bags, you can um, wash your clothes that are very synthetic, like your um, activewear in them. And you can get the microfibers out of them. This thing called the Cora Ball will catch microfibers in your washing machine, and then you have to clean it every like 30 washes. And it's basically like cleaning a linen trap. And then this attachment, um, if you own your house or if you have a landlord that lets you modify your house, 
um, it will filter all the water that comes out of your washing machine and you can catch all um, the microfibers that way. Okay, if you're super interested in this and you wanna see some great science communicators, these are my favorite um, books on the topic. They're for all kind of ages, all things that are interesting about it. Um, Moby Duck is the story of 28,000 rubber duckies that went overboard on a um, shipping vessel. And they all ended up in the same tiny town in Alaska. And then about three years later, more of them ended up in that same tiny town in Alaska. And then three years later, more of them ended up in that same tiny town because of the way the gyre worked. Um, and so this book helped, this um, crazy spill of rubber duckies actually helped us really understand how marine debris travels around the ocean and how ocean currents work. Um, though it was a very surreal thing for this town. Um, and that book is written really well and really breaks down the currents and US shipping and all kinds of things. Um, this book is written by the people who make method soap and house cleaning if you really want to make your life more green. Um, I recommend this book. It'll make you feel like anything you've ever touched has given you cancer, so fair warning, but it's a great book. Um, this book is basically like the biography of plastic and how we got to be such a plastic-dependent society. It's very fascinating. This book is um, a story of people that love to beachcomb and the crazy things the ocean kind of coughs up that have been in there, like when they find pieces of space stations and 100 Nike left shoes, but no Nike right shoes, because those went to a different beach, and all kinds of things like that. This is a book about how storm drains um, end up at the ocean. We all know that, because we've all read that drain logo a thousand times, but we don't normally like actually soak that into our brains, that if we litter very far from the ocean, it will actually get to the ocean. Um, and this is a children's book. This book, um, Captain Charles Moore kind of discovered and named the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And then this book is actually about script scientists um, on a voyage in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Okay, you wanna watch some documentaries? They're short, short subject, long subject. Some of them are about very specific things like plastic bags, plastic water bottles, plastic straws. Some of them are a lot longer. Um, one, one of the ones, ones that, that I really enjoy, I think, I think my favorite, favorite thing about it is actually the title of it, is Smog of the Sea. And why I love that from a science communication standpoint is we all know smog, especially you guys who live in LA, um, you all know smog is pollution. But if I were to come up to you and ask you to clean up the smog piece by piece, you'd know that's a crazy thing to do, right? Because the plastic is so, or the smog is so small. But that's basically the situation we're in the ocean, is that the plastic is so small, it's almost impossible to clean up. It's just suspended out there, and yet it's making the whole ocean sick. And so I think that that uh, metaphor has become very um, poignant to where we are, um, where we're at in the middle of the ocean. Okay, if you really care about this, I always put this here too, websites of more info. Um, these, these are some, some of the best organizations working on this, and then, and then ways, ways to get involved if you are pumped on plastic and really want to work on it. The International Coastal Cleanup Day is every September, literally international. Not only do they clean beaches, lakes, rivers, um, but they also categorize every single piece of trash that's cleaned up. 
and, and we, we use that data, data and we analyze all that data, it's very helpful. Surfrider, they do local chapter cleanups, they also do campaigns. So if you want to get something banned or a tax passed in your city, that's great. And then Californians Against Waste do um, statewide campaigns and also pass a lot of statewide propositions. They were behind um, the statewide bag ban a couple years ago. Okay, okay. so again, this is my outreach strategy. By the end of step three, hopefully you're feeling a little bit less depressed and a little bit more like, huh, maybe there's something in there, like I'm a little bit fired up. That's kind of where I like to end things. There's something in there that I could actually do. Okay, these are other lessons I've learned from doing outreach over the years. Is I try to build a narrative through the slides. I'm not perfect at it, but this is what I try to do. And so my narrative for a long time has basically been, hey, the plastic isn't an island, it's actually made out of these tiny particles, but those tiny particles actually might be worse for the ocean. And they're worse because they're harder to see, harder to clean up, getting into the bottom of the food web. Um, and then I really, I really learned to explain it in the simplest way you can without losing the vision. So for a long time, people called it an island of trash. I, for a long time, was like, it's not an island, it's a soup of trash. Well, there's, there's nothing wrong with soup, right? Like, soup's not pollution. Actually, the stuff in soup is what gives it flavor. Like, the, the carrots and croutons and all that stuff, you don't want to take out of the soup. Someone then came along and called it a smog of plastic. And I was like, oh, that's so much better than soup. Because actually, you instantly know what they mean by smog, that it is pollution on a very tiny scale. So just, just constantly making these metaphors better. And I so often see scientists use metaphors that are like close, but not quite what they mean. Um, I think we've kind of gotten to that point with the greenhouse gas effect. It is exactly what it is, what, what is happening. But not a lot of people have been in a greenhouse anymore. Like people don't really garden that much. So I tell a lot of kids about greenhouse gases and they're like, what does that mean? And I'm like, huh. Okay, well, first, first we should take you to a greenhouse. Then I should teach you about global warming. So finding something that they really resonates with your audience. Um, only using graphs and numbers when you need to. And then constantly workshopping it. And I will say that these last two, in making this as a science communication talk today, I realized I'd slowly put more graphs and numbers into this talk over the years. Um, as, as the research had gotten finished, and, and I took more of those graphs and numbers out for you guys, um, and then realizing you guys don't need to know exactly how much plastic there was. I can tell you that it was a million times more, not five to seven orders of magnitude more. Because it doesn't matter. The difference in those two things is basically um, approximate. Okay. And so with that, um, I will take questions. <laughs> and yeah, and I'll, I'll take, take questions, questions about science communication and plastic. Thank you, guys. So let's bring up the house lights just a bit so Jenny can see folks in the audience. Does anyone have a question they would like to start with? Mm. Uh, I enjoyed the presentation that you had this evening. I learned quite a bit. In terms of the tiny particles of plastic, 
Um, I was thinking about the water that we drink mm -hmm. and them um, fixing the water for us to come into our homes and the concerns since there's such minute particles. Are we drinking minute particles of plastic in, in the water? Or uh, do you, I know, because it's a very concerning matter, um, the water that we drink. Yeah. Um, so I will say that you are definitely drinking tiny particles of plastic in bottled water. So if you drink bottled water, we have found it. Um, in tap water, it really depends exactly where your tap water comes from and how it's processed. Because um, different filters will catch it or not catch it, but it's not unlikely that you are drinking tiny bits of it. I will say though, that why we're not like sounding the alarm about it in human health is the dose, what we call a dose response of a human is so much bigger than a piece of microplastic. When I find microplastic in a plankton, it's the proportion of how small that plastic or how big that plastic is compared to the plankton is so different than you eating a few pieces of plastic. Thank you. And is there a problem with fresh water and salt water, plastic, more uh, of a problem in those different types of water? Um, it, it really, it also depends where you live. So some fresh water is like much less, um, much cleaner. Um, but then there's places like the Great Lakes where their concentrations of microplastic are basically as high as the middle of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. So it really depends where you are. And that's because certain places are getting tons of wastewater into their freshwater supply. So they're getting tons of these microfibers into them. Yeah. Hi, so it, it strikes me that in California, um, we've come to the conclusion that we'll no longer provide straws Mm -hmm. and plastic straws particularly. If we could somehow communicate what that one step is doing in this kind of an approach, um, a lot of folks wouldn't be nearly as upset about not getting straws. <laughs> I agree. Um, the funny thing about straws is straws were not like really on our radar, on my radar of like, I have found pieces of plastic that may have been straws out in the ocean, and straws are often on the list for the International Coastal Cleanup Day. They always do the top 10 pieces of plastic they find on the beaches every year, and straws are always in the top 10. Um, but I wouldn't say straws were one of the number one things seven years ago. I was like, we need to ban straws. Styrofoam is like the number one thing. I'm always like, I find so much styrofoam. It lasts for so long. But then straws just kind of took on this life of their own and people really started to want to ban them. And um, so I'm not gonna stop anyone from banning single use plastic and it kind of being that gateway of them learning about the issue. But I do agree that I think if people don't know the why of why they have to use these paper straws now or just drink out of the cup, um, then I think they get frustrated without knowing why. So I agree. It, came, it wasn't the most thoughtful rollout of the straw ban. Yeah. 
you mentioned the capturing the microplastics out of the um, washing machine. Yeah. And you clean it after 30 day, thirty loads or something. Mm -hmm. How do you clean it and what happens to the microplastics after you take them out? So unfortunately, um, for all of those methods, you actually just have to wash, or you just have to clean it by your with your fingers, and then you actually, unfortunately, just have to throw that plastic away right now. Um, you can't recycle it and definitely don't rinse it out because then you've like, all your work is in vain. Um, but so right now we feel like it going into the landfill is better than it going in to the wastewater in down the drain and into your freshwater or your here probably directly into the ocean since you guys are so near the ocean, but you are throwing it away, which is unfortunate. Hopefully someday you won't be, but right now you are. Isn't there an attempt to clean up the great garbage patch at the moment, uh, funded by Silicon Valley. I realize yes. it's going after the big lumps of plastic. In your world, what's the opinion of that project? Yeah, so it's actually called The Ocean Cleanup, a very um, vague title. Um, the big problem with it, I guess, in our view, is that it is going after the big pieces. And since the vast, vast majority of the plastic is the tiny pieces, it's going to miss what the vast majority of what's out there. Um, it also, as a design, could catch some animals and in itself entangle some animals in the process. Um, and so it could almost become marine debris in itself. Um, so I think, I think this field being so new is ripe for innovation and engineering. And there are a lot of engineers inventing things like the Cora ball and cleanups and cleanup things that could be right at dirty harbors, basically smaller versions of the ocean cleanup that could, could clean up places like the harbor where the plastic is still much larger and could be more effective. But I don't think trying to skim out what's out in the middle of the ocean um, right now is very practical because that plastic is very tiny. The ocean is huge, and there's nowhere very practical to take it once you have it in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. I would, if I was in charge of the whole ocean, I would focus on the coastal debris first. Uh, since you mentioned the emergence of technology, and, and you also mentioned that corn-based uh, plastic's not the answer. Are there uh, emerging technology that is the answer for uh, repl uh, replacement plastic, if you will? Yeah, I think um, there is. Um, not the answer now, but maybe the answer in like a decade. Um, there's plastic that is um, that exists right now that can dissolve in um, ocean water but it is incredibly expensive. So it's nowhere near a price that we could make all plastic out of it. Um, but I, I think we could start making certain pieces out of it. And um, we're starting already to make certain pieces of like fishing nets out of it. They sell monofilament fishing line made out of it. So if that fishing line is out there for a really long time, it'll slowly degrade. Um, there's also really exciting um, solutions for instead of making new plastic, actually making new ways for the plastic to disappear. And a lot of that is bacteria 
that can actually break down the plastic. So plastic is made out of oil. The only thing on Earth that can break down oil, it looks like, is bacteria. And so there are some bacteria that can actually break down plastic back into its kind of most basic chemical forms that something else can eat it. Um, and so maybe someday we could really have like trash recycling your normal compost and then like your plastic compost and you could compost all your, all your recycling or all your plastic. But to get it to a scale we could really do it will take a while. But bioengineers are working on it. I am not a patient person, and this has been driving me crazy for decades. Uh -huh. um, one plastics documentary I saw I could only watch about five minutes of, and it posed the question early on, why did we take something that is basically lasts forever and use it as a disposable product? <laughs> <laughs> and then I heard you about the dosage. Uh, recently I heard that uh, on average, humans ingest a credit card's worth of plastic every year or something yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. So, I'm sorry, this is just speaking from my frustration. What is it gonna take for us to wake up and stop producing plastic and stop using it? I think, so why we ever did it is, I think purely probably a cost thing, um, that plastic was so cheap to produce. Um, I hope there was an ignorance too of like not realizing how long it would last, but they did know that it's fossil fuels and so they last a very long time. What it'll take for us to wake up and not use it, use it so much, um, I've been doing this for seven years now and people are definitely waking up to it. When I started seven years ago, there was not a single bag ban anywhere in the country and it's starting so people are banning plastic bags, they're banning straws, they're banning styrofoam, um, whole countries are banning these things. They're really getting on board with the fact that like, oh, we don't want these chemicals in our plastic, we don't want this plastic, we don't want this. Um, but I think ultimately a big part of it is realizing that there's a lot of money to be made in plastic and so realizing we're up against a pretty big economy, I guess, a big industry in the end. Just to PS on that, I visited Rwanda in 2006 and they'd already had a plastics ban in effect for some time. So you land at the airport and you have to, you change in your plastic bags for paper bags. It's and that was 2006 and we're just doing it now. I'm it's sorry. amazing how far other countries are. Europe is like decades ahead of us. But. <laughs> I think we've got time for one more question. Looks like we got one more in the back there. Um, when you mentioned about the recycled plastic not being an answer, and then you spoke about the bacteria, what's the possibility of continuing to have recycled plastic but not recycling like we recycle it and then grow bacteria and put it all in a place and sprinkle bacteria over it to help get rid of it? Is that possibly feasible? I think it is actually possibly feasible. So I think, um, so right now, there's almost no way to recycle styrofoam. There's technically one company that says they're recycling styrofoam, but um, they are also the biggest styrofoam manufacturers. Um, and they're losing both money and energy on it. So the definition of recycling is it's supposed to be an energy efficient process. Um, but there is a worm 
that can eat styrofoam based on the bacteria that's in their guts. And so people are trying to isolate whatever enzyme this bacteria is making so that the styrofoam that we have been making since 1954, we can someday compost or get rid of. Because pretty much every styrofoam coffee cup that has been used since 1954 is out there somewhere. We basically have never, we've recycled the teeniest fraction of 1% of all that styrofoam and the rest of it's still out there somewhere. And so I think there is a really big um, market to find a real solution to compost some of these things or find ways to get rid of them. Um, but I, I'm not giving up on recycling. I know some people are. But I think we'll figure out how to like teach Americans to recycle well <laughs> and recycle our goods again. Um, and I, I, I haven't given up on some of those solutions we've been using for years. So. Yeah, I think it'll happen. I think we'll become more efficient on these things as the trash keeps piling up. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you, Jenny. We really appreciate what you shared with us tonight. Give her a round of applause. I learned a new word, nerdle. That was new for me, so that's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to get a quick clarification. Is that your Twitter handle or your Instagram handle? On that's the my Twitter handle, yeah. Perfect, so that's how you can look her up if you Oh, yeah, sure. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, let people, you can take a photo of that or write yeah. it down. And while you're reading through that, I just want to let you know that our next lecture will be July 31st, and we'll be hosting a panel discussion about the ocean and its role in a sustainable future with professional big wave surfer Jamie Mitchell and some other experts. And of course, if you can't attend in person, it is always available online as well. Thank you guys so much for coming tonight. Thank you again to Dr. Jenny, and have a great evening. Thank you. Thank you.